Stay hungry, stay foolish. The work of today's guest is based on a vast body of knowledge and represents a new methodology for researching the potential of the marijuana high. It is informed by the philosophy of the mind, the cognitive sciences, psychology, chemistry, neurobiology, and a systematic analysis of hundreds of anecdotal reports. It blends hard science with the warmth of human experience and a deep appreciation for the complexity of human consciousness. While medical cannabis is capturing most of the attention at the moment, the vast majority of users, an estimated 85%, are interested in the high first and foremost. Our guest is pushing that even further. He wants to know how the high can spur creative thinking, deepen empathic understanding, help with many illnesses, enhance the way we pay attention, or bring hidden memories to the fore. Cannabis has always been able to do some of these things. Rather than dwelling on the supposed dangers of cannabis, none of which have ever been proven, he's asking a far more intriguing question. How can we use it to enhance our existence? Prohibition prevents independent expert information on cannabis biology, strains, genetics, and growing from entering the mainstream media. Furthermore, users have been actively misled by criminal dealers who take advantage of prohibition and the lack of knowledge on the side of consumers to sell them cheaply produced, low-grade marijuana, sometimes laced and weighted with dangerous substances under the name of superior strains. It is for these reasons that we welcome today's guest, philosopher, consciousness researcher, creative director, photographer, and author of High Insights on Marijuana and What Hashish Did to Walter Benjamin. Sebastian Marincolo, welcome to the show. Hi, Aiden. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show, Sebastian. I thought we might start with a state of the nation. What kind of marijuana usage that we know of are we aware of in the world today? Mostly um, the prohibition that had been going on for a long time now, or has been still uh, in most uh, countries, led to cannabis on the market that is degraded. So many people only get laced cannabis that is badly produced and also genetically impoverished because they want to have de-stress function. They want to use it or abuse it for escapism, as I call it, which is to sit down and, and smoke and maybe have that couch lock feeling. But also very often because uh, the cannabis is degraded and has a lot of CBN in it, cannabinol, it doesn't lead to clear thinking, but it kind of shuts down your mind. And it's uh, so I don't want to look down too much on it. It, it can be helpful to de-stress and relax, but it doesn't lead to what I would call the uh, enhancements, the cognitive enhancements that you can experience during a high. Mostly the cannabis that is known and the way people use it doesn't depend on the real thing, but it's a sad story that has been shaped by the prohibition in the last decades. So one of the reasons I reached out to you, Sebastian, is there are very few studies into the positive impact of cannabis on the human mind and the human body, etc., and this show offers a kind of a neutral view where I'm not saying we should smoke. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just shining a light on something that doesn't get enough attention. And many governments are afraid to fund studies. And I get that as well because of the mindset or the framing that has been in place in humankind for such a long time to frame cannabis as a bad thing. 
I think we are entering a completely new time where it will be impossible to make studies. And because the legislation is changing all over the world, people are seeing that medical marijuana is really uh, valuable, extremely valuable for many indications, not only chronic pain, but also Tourette's, maybe even Alzheimer and a whole range of other indications. This will lead more and more, which it has already done, to the change in legislation everywhere that will enable people to study cannabis better. But of course, it will be more focused where people see immediate medical value because that's where the money goes right now. I'd like to see more scientists looking into the mind-altering potential of cannabis and how it actually affects uh, cognitive abilities like pattern recognition, attentional focus, um, episodic memory retrieval, empathic understanding, introspective understanding, as well as uh, your ability to be creative and come up with creative insights. So that will take a bit longer, but I uh, think I have done some groundwork to deliver hypotheses to people, and I have built on my own research methodology to feed into and to generate hypotheses for people and to go in to use brain scanners and, and modern empirical science to look into all that. Before we go there, because I'd love to talk about the illnesses and also then how it can spark our creativity or enhance our creativity. But before we do, it'd be great to talk about the science behind it, Sebastian, because we talked before the show about the endocannabinoid system, for example, and it's only a relatively recent discovery. This was discovered in the early mid-90s that we all have an endocannabinoid system and it's present in almost all animals. And it's uh, evolutionary speaking, this is 500 million years old. So you find it in uh, really creatures, uh, sea creatures that we know are that old. That means we all have a system, a signaling system with endocannabinoid receptors and endocannabinoid activators that act on those receptors that control various functions in the brain and in the body. And uh, these receptors are the CB1 and CB2 receptors are distributed all over the body. And we already have thousands of studies or papers, scientific papers on that endocannabinoid system. And it gives a really good understanding already of uh, many of the functions that we see enhanced in patients or in people who shared their anecdote or experience with cannabis. So I give you one example. The endocannabinoid system we know is involved in the suppression of post-traumatic memory. So if you have a trauma from some, some kind of accident, the endocannabinoid system in your brain is responsible for weakening the emotional response to that memory. That helps you to get over the trauma. Now, if that trauma is extremely strong, you might experience post-traumatic stress syndrome. Today, we know that a lot of people in the States, the Vietnam veterans, but also other war veterans, profit from taking cannabis because they say they can deal a lot better with their traumatic experiences. They can sleep better and uh, it helps them to de-stress. And there seems to be an effect of phytocannabinoids uh, that interact, so, so plant cannabinoids that interact with that body-owned endocannabinoid system and seems to help the system to function when some things go out of control. We know today that this endocannabinoid system is mainly there for homeostasis. So it delivers 
an equilibrium, it delivers a balance uh, for many processes, and it's it's important for many processes like appetite, uh, stress relief, uh, but it's also in the immune system. So we have already have a good understanding of this endocannabinoid system. And we have thousands and thousands of anecdotes of patients, and we have doctors working with various indications that mirror those uh, where you can see how actually the phytocannabinoids work on that system, how they help to control various functions in the brain and in the body. For clarity for the layman like myself, we have receptors in our brain for marijuana and cannabis. We can receive the benefits that they can give us. And these benefits can en enhance our minds, but also, as you say, you mentioned that they can regulate anxiety, the fight or flight response in our bodies, which is huge at the moment. We, we're seeing massive cases of anxiety across the world, and this could be a reliever of those symptoms. Oh, absolutely. And especially CBD, cannabidiol, is an important cannabinoid, second major cannabinoid in cannabis. There are more than 100 cannabinoids or almost more than 140 we know today in cannabis uh, that can act on the system. The phrase we're built to receive the cannabinoids is not true, though, because if you look into the evolution of the endocannabinoid system, that evolved long before the cannabis plant emerged. The cannabis plant, which is the only plant that directly uh, delivers cannabinoids. There are other plants that like kava kava and other plants that indirectly or to some degree like pepper with beta caryophylline interact with the uh, endocannabinoid system. But the endocannabinoid system evolved long before cannabis, which is the major source of cannabinoids that directly acts on that. That evolved like 37, 40 million years ago or something in that leak. So that came later. So maybe the plant was targeting us. <laughs> Who knows? Definitely the success story of cannabis is intimately uh, intertwined with that of humanity because, I mean, humans have always used cannabis and it's been in all pharmacopedias of the world since the beginning. I mean, we've seen uh, we see the first mentionings of cannabis in, in books about medicines, um, plant medicines thousands of years ago in, in China and in India and then in Egypt. So it's omnipresent and it's everywhere described as one of the major and most important plants for healing, which makes sense if you know the endocannabinoid system and how many functions it has. And you even mentioned in the book that animals seek out psychoactive substances on a regular basis. This is a, a really interesting perspective that I learned from Ronald K. Siegel, who wrote a book, Intoxication, the Universal Drive for Mind-Altering Substances. That goes back to research from the, I think, 80s and 90s that he did. Basically, his thesis is that all animals are systematically seeking out mind-altering substances in their environment from elephants who would look for fermented fruits, amarula fruit to get drunk, or flies who look for fly agaric, ants who live in a symbiosis with a beetle who secretes a certain kind of, um, it's a funny story actually, secretes certain kind of uh, chemical that seems to make them go uh, trip. <laughs> and uh, so these ants would save that beetle first if, they're, if they get attacked. Uh, other ants will save their <laughs> offspring first. I think the best story from Ronald K. Siegel, I find to illustrate his thesis is that of, I think it's elks in Siberia who are eating fly agaric or psilocybin mushrooms, and they stand there 
and they trip. Obviously, they're drooling and they're tripping on those mushrooms, like probably like we would do. When other elks come and see them tripping, they also look for those mushrooms. If they don't find them, they stand in golden shower position and drink the urine of those elks because <laughs> in that urine, it's metabolized and it's even stronger, the effect. And uh, then they trip too. And in that region, you, you find that shamanistic traditions have used then those plants, those mushrooms for the same effect. And they also have that tradition of drinking the urine of somebody who has ingested that and they they use that to to heal people to come to insights for for religi religious and, um, and medicinal purposes and this illustrates really well what the thesis of Siegel's work is a animals all species have are systematically looking for a mind altering substance it's like a fourth drive he says and B, that's an important thing, is humans learned that behavior from animals. When they were hunters and gatherers, uh, humans would chase animals and they would have to observe them. When do they sleep? When do they, when do they eat? When are they defenseless? And uh, so they learned that from animals. They learned to find the plants that changed their minds or altered their consciousness. And um, so th that's a very important perspective to have because that casts completely new light on the whole effort of people to say uh, war and drugs or you know to make us refrain from any usage of psychoactive substances that term you use there let's talk about that the war and drugs because you mentioned the work of george lakoff yeah. and how framing has a huge impact on how we think about things and the language is an archaic language really we talk about this on the show it's out of date for business because business has changed. So the environment has massively changed. Business models have changed. The ecosystem has changed. But it's the same for drugs because you talk about back in the 1940s, some of the language used in prohibition acts in the US was racist. It was attacking, for example, black jazz singers. It was full on racist. Yeah, full on racist. And it's still the same language that's used to frame our biases today. There's a lot of linguistic conditioning that's problematic. If you look at even liberal media would go out and say things or write things like Amy Winehouse was killed by drugs and alcohol. And then you're asking yourself, hey, don't you mention alcohol as a drug? If I, if I go out and teach them that's happening, if I teach my kids, we're going to the, to the zoo today, you're going to see animals and you're going to see elephants. You know, when they're grown-ups, elephants for them are going to be something different. You know, I never subsumed elephants under animals. And this is how people think about alcohol, for instance, today. Most of us here, especially in Germany, it's probably not different in Ireland. We're drinking alcohol, but we don't. I would tell most alcohol consumers, you're a drug consumer, man. Uh, they would be like, no. I mean, literally, I had a guy standing next to me at a at a reception party uh 45ish and i told him about my books and he said well i can't say much about that i don't take drugs and he had in his hands i'm not kidding i'm not making this up a red bull vodka a cigarette and an espresso and i looked at him and i said you know it's funny because while you're saying that you have probably more than 100 um substances in your brain that are actively changing or and altering your consciousness and some of them are even designed for that purpose uh, so yes you're taking drugs you're taking a lot of drugs and uh, you have to rethink what you what you just said but this is the linguistic conditioning and um, our uh, 
wrong use of metaphors uh, is deeply embedded in the whole history of prohibition. So people have come up, there were uh, think tanks working on those metaphors, like the war on drugs that came out of the Nixon administration. has never There has never been a war on drugs. There has always been a repression of various groups, ethnical or political groups of people who are taking certain kinds of mind-altering substances. But, you know, it's always been the case in a society, some people chase the tobacco users, but allowed uh, the use of uh, psilocybin mushrooms, and there was a prohibition on alcohol, but cigarettes were allowed, etc. So there's never been really a war on drugs. This is uh, a metaphor that's deeply, deeply flawed. It's really interesting you mentioned alcohol because it's a huge problem. I, I believe it's a huge problem in Ireland. There's declining consumption of alcohol worldwide, I believe. And we're seeing now some of the beer companies invest in cannabis. I mean, Corona, a beer owner, recently invested $4 billion into weed in Canada, for example. So they're seeing the conviviality that alcohol provides being the same thing as cannabis, and they're seeing that as a new market to enter. Those drug companies, pharmaceutical companies and alcohol companies tried to hold on to the war on drugs and they actually funded institutions that tried to hold down marijuana. Now they're seeing there's a market and they're trying to participate, which in itself is nothing bad. If you uh, look into cannabis, for instance, there should be a market, there should be medical cannabis, and I also think it should be available for adult use. And that's what my book is about. There are so many uses of cannabis that can be life-changing and positive if you know how to use it and if there is education about it and if you're provided with good material. So there's no problem with people making money or if there's a market or a big market. But what we should be careful about is people just trying to make a quick buck and not not considering patients and people who are using it. But this is happening now, and I'm looking forward to the market, the upcoming market getting bigger and bigger because this allows us to uh, go into studies. And uh, the more money is generated, the, the more we will be able to really then come up with studies that show exactly what cannabis is good for to come up with great medications that are targeted to various needs uh, for certain patients. And I think we're standing on the verge of a revolution. It's already started in Germany. We had 1,000 patients last year or in 2017, beginning 2017. Now we have around 40,000 in Canada. We have more than 350,000 patients. Many countries are opening up now to different, uh, more liberal laws for medical marijuana. And I think this is only the beginning of a huge market and a, a, a huge movement that goes in the right direction. But now we have to make sure that it stays right. You mentioned earlier on the PTSD can be massively helped. For example, a lot of neurodegenerative diseases can actually be helped massively. This is where I would like to see more um, uh, more studies being done now because that we are, to some degree, we understand the endocannabinoid system functions. But of course, it's a different story to see how phytocannabinoids interact with that system and to see how um, for various indications like Alzheimer or Parkinson. For instance, we have a lot of anecdotal stories from Parkinson patients who uh, seem to profit from cannabis um, as it reduces their tremors or rigidity or helps them to sleep, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, of course, there's a long way to 
finding out now exactly for what indications cannabis can help. If it, for instance, it's used for multiple sclerosis, but we don't know because it helps a lot with um, uh, the symptoms. And uh, but we don't know if it helps to stop the progress uh, to some degree uh, of the illness. We need to know more about that as we go along. And and of course, I'm I'm really looking into. What my basic interest was, first of all, was to to look into how cannabis can um, alter cognitive functions and how it works on consciousness, not only to understand how cannabis works. I wanted to understand, as a philosopher, the architecture of the human mind. So if you see how psychoactive substances like cannabis or LSD or other substances like psilocybin or MDMA work on the human mind, you you learn a lot about the cognitive architecture itself. I hope that with the market getting bigger, with more patients profiting, we're generating also some money to go into research that goes into that direction because it will also be helpful for our understanding of how cannabis could help in psychotherapy, how it could help in various other aspects, and, and also how we could use it personally uh, as an enhancer for creativity and other uh, processes. We might jump to creativity next, but before we do, you did deep research in both in university and afterwards on how cannabis can help empathy. And that led you to shining a light on autism. And I quoted a passage from the book where a mother talks about how it helped a brave mother who used cannabis to help her 12-year-old autistic son. Here's what she said about it. He was on a combination of 13 prescription drugs. His weight had dropped down to 46 pounds. He was diagnosed with anorexia and malnutrition second to his autism. Ultimately, his doctors gave him six months to live and she was devastated. Then she gave him medical marijuana. And this is what she said. The immediate change I saw was eye contact and he gained over 40 pounds. He's happier and better behaved than ever before. I thought that was really interesting because as you say in the book, one in 68 kids in the US have some form of autism. Autism is highly interesting. As I state in my essay that's in the book, What Hashish Did to Walter Benjamin, uh, there seems to be, there are some studies already that indicate that something is going wrong with the endocannabinoid system. When you have autism, I hypothesized a while ago already that the endocannabinoid system may have really important functions for our empathic understanding of other people. There are various neurophilosophical or neuroscientific theories about how that works from mirror neuron systems hypotheses to to other uh, simulation theory hypotheses. I've gone through many of them, and it's a really interesting field. What is the basis? What helps us actually to understand other people? Autism and empathy was interesting for me also because there are so many cognitive functions involved in empathic understanding, and I have described many of them. So let me go through a quick list. I believe that if you use it correctly and you have good cannabis, it can help you with your focus of attention, can help you with your episodic memory retrieval. That means it can help you to remember events from long ago better. It can help you with pattern recognition. So pattern recognition, people always think of visual patterns, but a pattern recognition could also be a behavioral pattern. You could see somebody, uh, you as a rugby player, you could see somebody running over the field and say, oh my God, this guy is not today 
he's not on it. He's not in the flow. He doesn't really know where to go. Or maybe he's a bit confused from a concussion or something. So that's a behavioral pattern. I have also described the intensified imagination, an enhanced body image perception, enhanced introspective understanding, an enhancement of your ability to come up with great insights. And when you look at empathy, many of these abilities come together. Here's an example, a hyper-focus and the redirection of, uh, of your attentional focus. If you're sitting, um, next, uh, sitting next to me and we're talking, um, and I focus not on what you say, maybe you tell me something about mathematics, and I don't focus on, your, on what you say, but I, I hyper-focus now on your body language, then I might find something out about, uh, I might, might get a better empathic understanding of that you are a very confident person or that you're a courageous person just by looking the way you move. Um, so this is an enhancement of hyper-focus already can focus you on um, various aspects in your experience that help you with your empathic understanding. Now, episodic memory retrieval, your ability to retrieve memories. Now, let's say you remember, you see a kid uh, on a swing and you see it having joy and you remember now vividly how you were sitting similarly when you were five on a swing and you had this incredible joy of flying through the air and landing. You can predict the kid and you're going to be like, oh my God, this is so addictive. When I did that, I did that for hours and hours and I just want to jump and be in the air. So you're uh, if you're better able to retrieve memories, episodic memories from your life, you might be able to understand better other people um, in their situation as they are now because you've lived through similar experiences. Pattern recognition, I just talked about it. The enhancement of pattern recognition that, you, that a lot of uh, people reported during a high um, when they said, oh, I had a great, uh, I, I listened to a Miles Davis solo and I could actually, I could really feel how he learned this one from Charlie Parker or how he was influenced uh, by John Coltrane and the way he uh, improvised. Um, this is pattern recognition. If you have, this works on various levels when you uh, look into empathic understanding. Empathic understanding needs a lot. If you look into body posture, the tone of voice of somebody, thats all. these are all patterns. If I have a very uh, monotonous pattern in my voice or if I have a very enthusiastic pattern, this is something to, to you have to be able to depict. Uh, um, body posture, but also facial patterns are incredibly important. When you look at empathic understanding, a lot of cognitive abilities have to be in place. And uh, I showed and I tried to show how many of these cognitive abilities can be enhanced uh, during a high. I'm always talking about the actual state of when you're high, not about long-term um, effects. If you look into the stories of mothers or fathers, and I talked to, many, to some of them, of autistic children, it's fascinating to see that they are... Uh, socially interacting in a better way. They are looking in the eyes of their parents. They're snuggling. And it's it's not only that they are emotionally more connected, but it seems that they are more functional, picking up patterns and with their focus and with their empathic understanding of others. And uh, it's deeply moving to see how cannabis can help because I think a lot of people have understood that cannabis can help autistic children 
uh, or others with um, Asperger's, but they don't understand how much of a change it can make. It doesn't heal them completely. It doesn't bring them back to normal. But uh, there are steps in when you listen and, and look at the reports of mothers that are really deeply touching and that, are, that show an enhancement of very complex empathic behavior. That's a very fascinating subject there. It's one of the reasons I really felt it necessary to talk about it because people who have autism have a massive gift as well, but they find it difficult to operate in the world the way we have it, the way society has presented the world. So therefore, if we can enable them to be more empathetic and also then engage, as you say, through the use of cannabis, then they can actually reveal their gifts and we can actually find amazing people and liberate them. I also found that the understanding of autistic people is very often flawed in that we think that they all don't understand emotions. Uh, many of them are even hypersensitive to emotions, uh, but some, like 50% or so, uh, suffer from atymia, which is the inability to perceive emotional expression. I don't want to generalize too much because there seem to be many kinds of deficiencies and other, but also uh, enhanced abilities when you look into the autism spectrum disorders. But this is, this, by the way, this is interesting also when you look at the this is very often the case that we describe something or somebody as deficient. Uh, for instance, ADHD is the next thing. But then, of course, a lot of ADHD people are super highly uh, talented for the uptake of really fast information and uh, for processing information really well. So you always look at, have to look at both sides, which is, by the way, the same thing for cannabis use. I always remind people that altering your mind could be great in one situation and could be bad in another. It really depends on where you are, what you're doing right now. Uh, just consider sleep. Uh, sleep is great for imagination. So you might wake up and remember your dream as a painter and you have a great memory of something that you visualized. So that could, could be useful for creativity. But if you're sleeping while you're driving, that's probably not a good idea. Same thing with, same thing with, I mean, that's, you know, it's very basic. Uh, some, some of the things that I say, it seems very uh, stupid to say, but then again, when it comes to cannabis, because there was such a taboo around it, people don't remember that anymore. There are really important lessons. So when you take cannabis, for instance, and you hyper-focus in a situation where you are in an art museum, you might look at a Van Gogh painting and find patterns that you've never seen before um, uh, or aspects that you've never thought about before. So you might find great stuff there. But also... Uh, you might overlook that it's time to go and you do stupid things because you sit there and uh, you, you don't hear the bell ringing and uh, things like that happen. Like uh, things happen to absent-minded professors. Absent-minded professors do stupid things uh, on the face of it and you're like, oh my God, look at, you know, he didn't even uh, get his tie right or uh, he should unbutton his shirt because it's buttoned the wrong way. But while they did the stupid things because they were absent-minded because they thought they had an inner stream of thought that maybe led to a theory that later would win a big prize. And this is great that you mentioned Ronald Siegel's work with the animals. I think I have a very general point to make about altered states of consciousness. We always reconstruct ourselves in the Western world, especially as rational, logical human beings. And, and that is like the mode of existence. Well, 
it isn't. Uh, we we're sleeping eight hours a day or so or seven, hopefully, and um, and that's a weird psychedelic state already. And uh, we're going even during the day. All of us go through phases of uh, ecstasy or fight or flight mode or almost trance-like situations during dance or uh, during festivals or uh, sports activities and uh, we're going through meditative states so and those states usually are those that we consider really meaningful in our lives so our brain is made to go through those altered states of mind and that's the important lesson we have to use them at the right time sleeping shouldn't be you shouldn't sleep uh, while you're driving, you shouldn't be in ecstasy while you're operating a machinery. If you have an orgasm while you're operating a crane, might that might go wrong. But if in the right situation, it's just what you need and what gives your life a lot of meaning. So being high as an altered state of mind, and again, this sounds so trivial that it almost makes your ears bleed. But even researchers look into, you know, they give you cannabis and then they look into the dysfunctions of how to focus on an exam or something. And then they say, oh, look, it's just not helping for writing a math exam. Well, yeah, that's just as interesting as to know that sleep doesn't help for a math exam if you're sleeping while you're doing it. <laughs> you know, again, trivial, but it's because there was such a taboo of talking about it. Even in science, uh, some uh, constructions or studies go horribly wrong because we don't consider the fact that altered states of mind uh, have to be deployed basically in the right uh, situation. And uh, so the evaluation of a substance that puts us in, a, in an altered state of mind has to be a bit more careful there too. When I was reading that part of the book, actually, I felt it's like a waterbed effect. When you lean on one side, you might get enhancements in some places and then reductions of other functions in, in other places. But I wanted to ask you this because we mentioned some of the illnesses that it can help and it can help autism, it help creativity, etc. But you're writing a current book and you've given me some insights into that book. You're just waiting to get it published, which is all about the mechanics of it which is really interesting because some people will be listening to the show wondering, okay, that's great. It can help my autistic son or daughter, or perhaps it can help me with creativity, but how do I go about it? And I know we don't have enough scope in this show to do that, but it'd be great to just give a few guidelines on how to, is, is it CBD? Is it smoked? Is it vaped? Is it mixed with tobacco? Those kind of top line guidelines. The working title, and I'm still looking for a publisher, so if somebody listens who wants to publish a book like that, I'd, I'd appreciate it, uh, is uh, the working title is How to Get High, The Art of Cannabis Use. And it's mostly, again, it's not about the broad medical field. I mean, it will help some uh, with maybe ADHD and maybe uh, with autism. It will, will also really help maybe, but it's more about, again, cognitive enhancement. Of course, we know that the set and setting is really are really important for the psychoactive state you're going through. Set and setting mean the mood you enter an altered state of mind is important. Your your personal situation, your upbringing, your character, all that goes in into your set. If you're already a fearsome person who's educated that all that what you take is, if you take marijuana, that's going to get you in hell, then you're probably going to have a different experience than somebody the son of a hippie who, who thinks that uh, it's going to help him with his creativity and it's all going to be fine. So that's the set. The setting is your 
your external environment. So if I'm sitting at home with my friends and um, and uh, go through an altered state of mind like the high, I might have a great evening while that might not be so when I'm outside in a supermarket in a hectic environment where I also have to be um, afraid of being detected. So um, so this, for instance, is one reminder for people, and this is one advice I give to people, to set their environment right and to look into the right setting. But it's also about dose and dosing. And... Uh, so how much do I take, for instance, I give you an example for creative purposes. When I want to work on something more intellectual, I'm writing a book and I want to get in the process, in the flow of writing, I might want to use a vaporizer and have a few puffs only to get into the flow of my experience. That might be great for this stage and for this activity. Somebody else might want to decide that he wants to use cannabis to have something that's almost like a visual trip and take uh, ingest larger amounts. You should be safe to do that and experience to do that. And then you can get maybe a completely different experience out of it where you see things, colors, uh, and you're going through a visual trip that you can later use. It depends on what you want and it depends on what experience you have, your tolerance, etc. So so this book, How to Get High, is a very hands-on introduction to uh, the use of cannabis for mind enhancing, um, to unlock the mind enhancing potential which also talks about vaporizing, for instance. A vaporizer doesn't heat up cannabis as much as a joint would do, and so you don't burn, in a, burn it. And it's not only better for the lungs, but it's also you extract the cannabinoids and terpenes at a different temperature. And uh, so you, the outcome of that is, I think, a lot better because you stay clearer in your mind because you don't produce that much CBN, which is a degradation product of THC. There's a lot of hands-on advice on how to use cannabis, and there's information about the plant and uh, how plants, how we generally underestimate plants and what's in cannabis. But it's also telling about the various mind enhancements that I'm talking about in my research, And I, but I give hands-on advice on how to reach those states because i think it's um it's not an automatism that's a very important metaphor that i had in a previous described in a previous book in an essay um i don't talk about the i mean you could talk about flow i talk about riding a wave or it's a surfboard metaphor um when you consider cannabis as a tool and uh, you consider a surfboard as a tool a surfboard is a great tool if you want to go out there in the waves and have blissful experience if you know what you're doing with it if you have learned if you have acquired some skills if you have learned at which you know if you have uh, if you know your skills and if they match the waves where you go out if you can actually deal with that etc if you don't do that you're just going to go out and going to be thrown back on the shore maybe hurt yourself and again it feels very trivial to say that but you have to learn how to use a tool like a surfboard to come to blissful experiences and to to experience what you want to experience with it. Same thing with cannabis. You have to see it as a tool with a great potential because it is so deeply similar to our own endocannabinoid, to so many functions that are also in the brain, and it can alter so many functions. It can be a great tool to come to various mind enhancements that help you 
for various aspects in your life can also help you on your personal journey or personal development. But if you're if you don't know how to use it, it can actually hinder your personal development. A lot of people, I mentioned that in the beginning, are using cannabis or abusing cannabis for constant uh, stress relief, and they're shutting down their brains or their thinking uh, with bad cannabis, degraded cannabis, that it's not going to probably, as much as we know, um, CBN is not going to destroy your brain or something. I'm just talking about the short-term effects. But it's definitely, if you are every day just de-stressing on cannabis, you won't be able to write your exams to finish your tasks. And that might have a very bad effect on your biography and on your whole, the way you live. And of course, a lot of younger people have done that. So there is abuse, but it's not inherent in the plant. It's our relationship with the plant that has gone horribly wrong in this uh, in, in this in the last century and we're now about to see um how to uh, actually move back to a better integration of the plant into our lives and our societies the one thing that we didn't really touch on there is somebody who may have tried it may just have got the wrong strain so, so i'm thinking of again somebody who's trying CBD for medical reasons or for a child with autism or something, that just like there are various strains of, of cannabis, there's various strains of CBD and they can have different effects and they can be positive or negative and that people don't get discouraged when they try, try a different type of CBD, for example. The one thing is to, to know a bit more about CBD and THC. Um, both uh, CBD and THC can be very helpful also medically speaking. It's not that THC is just for recreation, for the high, and CBD is medical. Um, on the contrary, THC is really very helpful for a lot of conditions, uh, ADHD and others. And especially in combination, THC and CBD seem to be very helpful. So that's an important thing to know. But it's also important to know about the entourage, what we call the entourage effect. My friend Lester Greenspoon would call the ensemble effect. That means that in cannabis, there's not only THC and CBD, but there are a hundred or more other cannabinoids and also the terpenes that give it uh, its aromatic profile, limonene and other terpenes like beta-caryophylline or uh, myrcene. And um, so these other cannabinoids and terpenes also make a difference. So it might be the case that one strain or one variety of cannabis is more of a sedative, so that makes you feel like you want to sleep, which is great for some people. And other varieties are just stimulating and energizing and are more apt for taking during the day. Some varieties are better for chronic pain. Other varieties may uh, be better for ticks. And we're we're starting to get a better understanding in the industry and in the medical industry also what strain i mean there's no clear delineation you can't say this strain is great for this condition but you, we get a better understanding of how tc cbd and other uh, chemicals phytochemicals might interact and help with various indications and that's why we need also to work more on targeting for patients because there are so many out there but if somebody only knows from the black market a variety or various varieties that are more sedating, then, and he wants to use it during the day for composing or other creative purposes, that may have negatively interfered with his work for a long time. And then, of course, these people go out and say, whoops, cannabis, you know, might use it to slack or to sit down and watch television, but that's about it. 
Sebastian, if people want to reach out to you, a publisher, for example, looking to publish that third book, or people want to reach out to you with insights or to find out more about your work, where can they reach you? They can reach me. First of all, all the information is on my web blog, marijuana-insights.com. I think you'll find everything you need there. Philosopher, consciousness researcher, creative director, photographer, and author of High Insights on Marijuana and What Hashish Did to Walter Benjamin, Sebastian Marincolo, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Aidan. <laughs> <laughs>